Hello one and all and welcome to Handcut Radio. I'm Alex Svetkovic, a fashion journalist and consultant, and I'm joined this week by Alice Walsh, founder of British precision jewellery brand Alice Made This. In British menswear, Alice Made This is known for its cool factor, its understated modern designs and its innovative use of cutting-edge manufacturing techniques. I sat down with her to discuss her career as a product and industrial designer, how a search for the perfect pair of cufflinks sparked Alice Made This, and she passes on some stories from her seven years running an independent British brand. Let's do it. Alice. Alice of Alice Made This. Hello. It is uh, absolutely tremendous to take some time out to sit and have a chat. I've wanted to have a proper chat about how Alice Made This came to be for a while, because we seem to bump into each other at pity or at industry events or magazine parties boozing. and things like that. Booting, I'm always boozing. I know. I know. So um, we've, got, we've got some delicious lime cordial today instead, <laughs> to be sensible. Um, and I, I guess um, the best place to start is, which I seem to say every week, apologies listeners, is at the beginning. Um, what got you into design? Before we talk about Alice Made This, you, I believe you, you began your career as a, a, a product stroke yeah, industrial yeah. designer. Well, I had 12 years of being product and furniture designer. There we go then. Which was great, but I guess it was even before that. Um, my grandmother was a dress designer uh, back in... I can't do the maths, but a long time ago. Cool. Um, and she got headhunted to move to Zimbabwe in the time, or Rhodesia as it was known then. And so she was quite a kind of like woman in the workplace from years ago. Um, and I only knew her till I was three. And so she'd always had a place in my heart. And I just was convinced I was going to do fashion design. So I went to art college, went on an art foundation, did fashion design, did theatre design, did graphic design. I didn't even know these things existed when yeah. I was in school and um, did 3D design. Fashion design, I totally bombed at. And all the other ones I did okay at, did, you know, kind of got a pass or a merit. And fashion design, they kind of told me that I couldn't draw figures and it wasn't wasn't the place for me. Oh, so you, you were politely asked to focus <laughs> so, well, your energy I was just, it was advised that I look at an alternative. <laughs> <laughs> and then naturally I'd always, I'd grown up with two brothers, always built tree houses, always kind of cut things up, made... Uh, go-karts, all that kind of stuff, without even thinking about it. So as soon as I realised 3D design was an option, that was kind of led me into product and furniture. Cool. So I trained in that. Uh, In my third year, you get to do, uh, I got to do an industrial placement. um, And I did that with Habitat back in the day. Love it. um, Where Tom Dixon was creative director. um, And I had a fascinating year with an amazing bunch of designers who were all kind of young uh, fun RCA graduates um, or talented other universities, but a lot of them from RCA, and just learnt huge amounts about design, about raw materials, about production process, um, and that kind of cemented my passion for design, really. It's so interesting because it's funny. Design is, you know, when everyone grows up, they want to be a fireman or an astronaut. I wanted to be a knight. <laughs> yeah, that was mine. <laughs> Don't know how that happened. But so, you know, design isn't one of those sort of... Um, you know, it's everywhere around us, but you just, you never, as a young kid, you don't really engage with it, do you? You have no idea there are jobs out there. Like, no. you have no idea that you, there is a designer that puts together a book when you're a little kid. You know that there's a, a guy that writes the book, but you don't know that someone might create that book from scratch in terms of layout, or you don't know that behind the, the coffee maker that you're using, someone actually 
industrially designed it and drew it up and worked with the injection molding business or the metal pressing company or something like that. No. So that's something I, you kind of only learn through getting someone to talk to you about real life jobs if they come in and do a talk at your school or if you experience it through a relative or a um, an internship or something like that. It's so interesting. So yeah, so I guess in a sense it, it's not, it wasn't, you know, it, it, like some guests have come on and said, oh yeah, clothes were my first love or whatever. I guess it's not quite a first love for you, but it was just... Well, the design process, I think, always was subconsciously because right. I was definitely always, like I loved Lego. I was always taking things apart and putting things together. I'd be the first one out of me and my brothers who would be there kind of with the tools. I remember my dad specifically saying to me once, what do you want for Christmas? And I was like, oh my God, my dad's asking me what I want for Christmas. Something's gone really wrong because he never buys presents. But <laughs> it would always be mum. And I didn't know what to say. So I was like, do you know what? I would really love uh, a tool bench. A, you know, like trestle thing and a, and a saw. And he was like, oh my goodness, this is the first Christmas present I've ever been able to buy because like, I wouldn't know where to get you some shoes, but some tools I can do. I can do. Yeah. Brilliant. So you'd spent this brilliant year with Tom Dixon and lots of interesting creatives. Yeah, or at Habitat, I did my internship. And then when I graduated, I met Tom at my graduate show and he was looking for people to work for him. So I worked with him four and a half years and was at a really interesting stage of his business because there were about six to eight of us at the time. Um, and so I got to design as they grew as a brand. So I started doing lighting, then did upholstery, did it in Europe, did it in Asia, um, and kind of did installations around it in any project that came in. So it was a very quick, fast learning curve of That's just being awesome. thrown in the deep end. And I guess Tom Dixon really did kind of explode pretty quickly as a brand, didn't it? Yeah, well, I left four years later and there must have been about 40 of us. Yeah. So yeah. Phenomenal. Yeah. But I mean, now there's many more. But, uh, it's mad. Um, I keep going to I, I keep going through the Tom Dixon shop in uh, Coldrops Yard in Kings Cross and going, oh god, I want everything. But I you know, go into yeah. another room and there's another another element of design that yeah, you yeah. Well, no they, idea. that's where their head office is. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, cool. And they're kind of restaurateurs as much as they are product designers now and all sorts. Mavericks. Yeah, exactly. But he taught me some very good lessons that you should always sketch. And when I mean sketch, I mean sketch with a pencil and paper rather than directly onto a computer because you can express and communicate ideas very quickly and easily that way. And you should always understand a process before you start designing. So for me, that is very relevant where I will go and look and understand a factory process and be inspired by it and understand it from scratch, but also look upon it with fresh eyes. So when you design something, you are not making something that's difficult for them to achieve but you are maybe flipping it on its head interesting always on paper i love that analog analog design but i think i think now a lot of people design straight onto the computer and they are limited by what they know of that computer program um and so if you don't do that first i think there's a lot more breadth to your brilliant a little little piece of wisdom already for our our design (laughs) no i love it it's great (laughs) Um, so what came next? Let's whiz through. Um, then I did four and a half years there and it was amazing, but I came to a point where it had kind of plateaued and I was doing the same thing year on year. Mm. Um, and so I decided to flip it up and have a new challenge and go into industrial design. And I started working for a brand called Four People who were as um, influential as Tom Dixon was on my kind of thought process and future path. And that was anything from an aeroplane seat to a colour material and trim finish to a trend forecasting piece or a design strategy for um, 
a chocolate bar company or awesome. a car company or things like that. So that really taught me the idea of design being a, as much a brand um, or a brand strategy. Um, and it taught me about inner values and how you portray them through a product. Um, yeah, they taught me a huge amount. Um, and I was, very, I was only there for a year and a half. Help me out, because I am, as we know, a useless media lovey. Uh, industri- when we talk about industrial design, that it, you've kind of outlined it already, but it's not, it's not about product design, it's about... It is. They're all kind of part and parcel of the same thing. The, the way in Britain, and someone might kind of shout in and um, disagree with me, but when you work in a kind of furniture and product company for retail it tends to be that you design and make a product and sell it and your profit comes from that whereas industrial design or industrial design agency tends to be structured more like a um uh supplier so you are and i'm not using the right word so you are basically writing proposals and being paid for your time a service i see um so we would do projects for the likes of british airways or for the likes of panasonic and they would be to design an aeroplane car seat or an AV unit. And it's as much about the kind of the consulting process exactly, exactly. as it is the actual physical design yes, work. Yes, exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So that was great fun. And then after that, I went freelance because I wanted to do both. And no studios. Well, there. I think there are three studios now in the UK. At the time, there was one um, that did both. So I went freelance and did both. Brilliant. <laughs> and I, was a, I was a recruitment agent's nightmare. They kept saying, I don't, I don't understand what you do. You do kind of everything. And I'm like, well, I just do design. Why can't design be multidisciplinary and it be applied to project by project? Um, anyway, I got lots of lovely roles and interesting um, can, companies to work for from that. Can I just very quickly ask how you dealt with that in your own head? Because uh, it, the, it, on a purely on a... On a very quick selfish level uh i can't figure out at the moment what i am what hats now i am freelance because i am writing for four or five magazines so thereby i'm a i'm a journalist but i'm also sort of doing lots of can't you just be in media i I don't don't know know. i just don't know how to i haven't figured out whether am i running a little content studio or am I a one-man band consultant, or am I a journalist? I, I how do you wear yeah, different hats? Yeah, so but yeah, but I was just freelance at the time, whereas you're kind of building um, an empire around you of all the different hats. <laughs> um, I LinkedIn was just my best mate, and I contacted people, and I'd I'd also another thing that I'd learned along my kind of journey was that you never burn bridges, and I, I'm. I kind of have opinions, but I, I don't tend to burn bridges. I can have an opinion and have a heated debate with someone and we can end well type thing. Um, and so it, it LinkedIn was uh, an opportunity to open up a conversation. And then once I went in and said what I'd done in the past, what I'd done, what I'm keen to do, then projects would come out of that, really. So I think I always went in with the idea that it's interesting. So for De Beers, for example, I went in as a product designer to do a packaging design project. I'd never done packaging design in my life, but they were looking for a product designer to do their packaging, to give a new take on their packaging. So projects like that, very interesting. Cool. Okay. More good advice. More good advice already. Um, let's let's complete this this little thread then and bring us up to... Alice made this and yeah. the founding story. Yeah, so I went freelance and then kind of fell into a lovely role at Comran where I went back full time. And at Comran was when I started, I got married and started Alice made this. Right. And I had it, I had, when I joined 
full time with Conrad because I freelanced for them for a while. I had it written to, into my contract that it was fine for me to do this because it wasn't a conflict of interest. And I so see. I then did that until I had my first son and went on maternity leave and then used maternity leave as a kind of benchmark to push Alice made this in the time that I had off or assumed I had off and realised quite <laughs> quickly I didn't have off um, and then decided not to go back and decided to go freelance again to be able to shift the needle as and when it needed shifting. Cool. Time in. Uh, the idea for Alice Made This, I understand, came about as a result of your you getting yeah. married. Yeah. Talk me through the sort of the the light bulb moment you had and how that led into Alice made well since since I was at Tom Dixon I'd always wanted to start my own business um it was just finding what I did a business plan for a furniture business and realized quite quickly that the logistics of furniture were an absolute nightmare Mm. um and I was young and it was the first business plan I'd ever written so this was I was kind of ready to do something and when we got married we just couldn't find any cufflinks that we liked which sounds ridiculous um, because we neither of us a particular cufflink. Well, I'm definitely not a cufflink wearer. And Ed, <laughs> Ed if you know Ed, you know Ed, is not really a cufflink wearer. Um, but we wanted something almost for the person that didn't wear cufflinks. So yeah. we wanted something for the person that was looking for something unique that was maybe had a quite a creative view, cared about materials, um, and didn't want to just pop something as a brand extension of a, a, a well-known brand name or as a kind of gimmicky yeah I can't stand gimmicky cufflinks um okay um and that's kind of when when we couldn't find anything I was like okay that's an interesting niche we had a one-bedroom flat in Camberwell and I was like cufflinks won't take up much space (laughs) um the outlay that I would need to have to actually facilitate it was very small um and so it just gave me the opportunity to just do it so with all my factory knowledge I was like I need to find, I really want to do something that is clean, minimal, would, uh, and kind of shouts its materials. And, I, and our, our kind of signature styles are still very much what we started with. Mm. Our Edward Cufflink, our Alexander Cufflink, our Dawson, and which actually we've discontinued, and our Jasper. So Alexander's my brother. Edward was my husband. Jasper was my dog. Uh, <laughs> and Dawson was my twin brother's middle name because I didn't want to call it his first name, which he's never forgiven me for. Um, anyway, that those ones um, were kind of the idea that we wanted to just produce four different styles very quickly. And I wanted to find a precision turner and just do it like it was a beautiful uh, machine part. Um, and the beauty of precision turning is that it's, well for us is that it's always hidden away on the inside of a machine but actually when you look at the parts they are beautiful they're really high tolerance levels really clean cut really graphic um and they create the machining creates a kind of satin finish to the pieces which is beautiful beautiful. yeah and i found three different uk factories that i wanted to work with um i traveled a lot worldwide to factories and the end-to-end costs if you end-to-end every detail didn't justify not being in Britain and uh, industrial revolution, history of British making, uh, engineering in the UK is all brilliant. So part of my business plan was always to champion that. Um, 
and I quite quickly weaned it down to one because when you call a factory up asking them to do something they don't normally do you usually learn which ones are up for it and which ones aren't quite quickly yeah um and the beauty of that is that if you find the ones that are up for it you can kind of push them to do all sorts of stuff um, and the factory that we first ever used we still work with today and it's brilliant Lovely. So, we, so we made the collection uh, they thought I was known as the kind of weird cufflink girl. Um, <laughs> I think it benefited, uh, no disrespect to anybody, but I think it benefited being a girl in a very male environment when asking for something a bit random um, because I was already quite random in that environment. Um, I think that's changed in the last five or six years, mm. but at the time, very much so. Um, and yeah, I got them produced. I didn't know, I was a designer by training. I had no business acumen and no idea how to launch it I'd kind of touched on marketing and PR through the people that I shared kind of work environments with but I didn't know anything about it so I sent six pairs to people that either had um got me to where I was or um so my old bosses essentially or people that I kind of liked in terms of media or retailers and one of them was Jeremy Langmead at Mr Porter ah and so we launched this kind of cronky website <laughs> and started selling them. And day two, he rang me up and bought the collection exclusively. And I, he was like, would you consider going exclusive? And I was so out of my depth. I was like, that'd be brilliant. I'll yeah. go exclusive till Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> what an absolutely amazing story. Yeah, I remember being at the bus stop in London Bridge till now. And I rang Ed and I was like, Mr. Porter just called me. I'm going in tomorrow for a meeting. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. I had no idea that that's how it began. Yeah. And, I get, and I, again, you know, the... the the Mr. Porter factor of, uh, of of being backed by them at the outset must have just been extraordinary. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd sent, so I sent um, the cufflinks with a handwritten letter to each person and he obviously received it, read it, and they were looking. It was really early Mr. Porter days, so I think they'd been going for like four months. And was it that early? Yeah. Oh. And so it was right time and put in front of the right person that then took it to the kind of buyer and said, this is interesting, we're looking for unique British brands. Brilliant. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I've got to say, I'm absolutely loving this because uh, so much, so many sort of useful little business <laughs> hacks are coming out. I'm sort of, if there's someone listening to this who wants to be you in 10 years' time, they're getting all the yeah, tips. Yeah, you could be totally clueless, Just, yeah. basically. <laughs> <laughs> uh, send your product to the right people. Um, brilliant. I'd never have, it's weird because I'd never have thought to do that, but of course. Yeah, well, I don't know. I, again, I don't know whether. Because you, there's so much more access to people now. Mm. So, okay, so British manufacturing was a huge component of, of Alice Made This right from day one. You yeah. wanted to, to back uh, Made in England, Made in Britain, um, and it just kind of made sense. But talk, talk me through how your kind of relationship with Made in Britain has changed, because now your collection yeah, has so many it. different processes yeah. in it. Well, when we started, we were very much like um, industrial processes, um, telling the story of industrial processes, so making people understand that just because something's manufactured doesn't mean that it's not a honed skill. You know, whether you've got a pattern maker in a um, deep jaw stamping factory that's 75 years old and he's been doing that for, you know, 45 years, or whether you've got um, uh, an apprentice that's kind of learning his craft, it's still termed manufacturing, so it's just to make it less of a um, flippant word. Mm. Um, so we intended to initially launch each year a new production process. But then the reality of launching new production processes kicked in and some our customers clung to and others 
were a step too far or not quite right. Um, and then quite quickly, we enjoyed um, working with artists and artisans as much as industrial processes. So now we kind of look at men's accessories and jewellery as a category in terms of its precision and we overlay it with artisanal stories so whether that's our patina process which I can um, talk about now or later if you want me to okay. um, why well, not yeah. <laughs> so it's a, a guy in Deptford who is a specialist in patina which is a chemical reactive process that's applied to bronze and brass and copper and base metals um, to protect it or so, for example, a Henry Moore sculpture would have a natural patina, but you can fast track a chemical patina to um, offer a coating to your base metal. Ah, and that then almost preserves it in that state. Yeah, exactly. I see. So we've done a lot of different recipes, which and they're all different colours based on what chemicals you use. So if you use a copper nitrate or a silver nitrate or titanium oxide, they produce different um, kind of complex surface textures. And rather than doing a traditional enamel, we wanted to kind of take our colour palette from that. Yes. Um, and, well, paired with that, we found Derek, who was amazing, um, and who's worked with a bunch of sculptors in Deptford. And for me, it's just down the road from us. He's best in class at what's he, what he does. He's been doing it for years. He used to work for a bronze foundry as the patina man, and now he's set up on his own. And just everything for us struck a chord. When, when you peel back the layers, it is extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I have it, at no point in my 26 years of life has my brain gone, oh, yeah, there must be like bronze foundries in like London. It's yeah. Um, unbelievable. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, is that the process? There's with less the... now, which literally makes my kind of heart well slightly yeah. ache. Um, uh, and I think that's what's really sad about England is it's harder to come across the beautiful industry and processes of past. That being said, the best ones have remained. So you've got less to choose from, but you've got amazing ones. That's interesting. Um, you, you, do you find it is difficult to find kind of suppliers yeah, that can do what you do? Yeah, like we used to do, so our um, kind of precious metal plating, which is a lot of our women's pieces, um, all of our stuff is precision turned in Hartford. We used to plate it all just up the road here, but we can get much higher quality plating in Spain. Mm. So we now do all of the precious metal finishing in Spain. And that was a massive decision for us because we make everything in Britain and we finish, like everything we've done to date has been in Britain, but that really was a quality reason. Yeah. We're like, if it's, if it's got to go there because it's, the best for its quality then we have to make that decision of course and uh, yeah of course you can't but that is that does um that sounds me as well as a, as a made in in britain fanatic um a, a big question then and this may this may or not may or may not be something that we can sort of tackle between us which is when you engage with all these small industrial firms that are and the market is shrinking and the number of active suppliers is shrinking. Do you look at the industry or the kind of manufacturing industry and, and think there is a solution to this problem? Or? Yeah, it's a tricky one, um, especially with the, our main factories. We talk a lot with them about apprenticeship schemes and government kind of like um, legislation on it all. And I wouldn't want to kind of say the wrong things in terms of I don't know enough about it in depth. But I think... Um, the benefit of the expense of the university system is that people are questioning going and they're saying, do you know what? Maybe it's not for me, 
yes, it would be fun for three years, but actually I could go and do an apprenticeship scheme and learn an art or learn a craft and let that roll on. So they've definitely seen a higher calibre of apprentices come on board over the last five years, I'd say. Um, so maybe that will benefit it. I don't know. And they def- there's, there's definitely a black hole of skill. Mm. So there's a lot of guys that are getting to retirement age or remaining regardless of retirement age because they are a sole skill base to do a certain task. And I think there will be a lull between the next category of folk. So, so is it almost uh, a problem of, of, of supply rather than demand for these services? In the, if uh, A bit of both. It is, is it? Yeah. I think the problem with um, the guys that are retiring is they've got such a depth of knowledge that can only be compared if you've had the time to gain that knowledge. And no one behind them has had that time yet, or even close to that time, because there's this bit of a hole. Uh, But I mean, that being said, there are obviously people that can and do, but there's just a a smaller amount of them than there were. It is interesting, isn't it? I think, uh, uh, to segue a little bit, um, I, I am constantly writing in editorials at the moment, the pace of life is getting quicker. You know, everyone wants a quick solution. Everyone's online all the time, et cetera, et cetera. We've addressed that already in this podcast. But I think my generation in particular and the younger generation does just want to get where they're going quicker, regardless of what it's doing. And actually, if you look at at any kind of craft... You're looking really, really at to hone the it. minimum of a decade, aren't yeah, you, to take on absolutely. what an old master has to give you? Yeah, and we're just—I think our society—it's the, kind of, the kind of understanding that only comes through experience. Yeah, um, I also think our generation, compared to parents and grandparents, is your job is not for life, whereas previously a job was for life, and so you would put the time in to kind of really hone it. Whereas we all flippantly flip about. Yeah, it's two years, two years, two years. Yeah, yeah. very interesting. Maybe it'll do full circle. Maybe. <laughs> um, okay, well, that, let's continue down our, our kind of overarching path then. Um, you've touched on it already, but I'm interested to, to learn a bit more. When you set up Atlas Made This, you, you did it as a, as a product stroke industrial designer. Yeah. Uh, but not a business person. No. What were the challenges that you kind of involved in kind of getting the business moving then? Um, I had a very steep learning curve. I had, <laughs> I had, I had a wonderful um, family friend who was a woman who was a badass businesswoman. Cool. Um, and quite kind of vocal at doing it her way rather than another way. And she um, taught me how to write a business plan, told me my spelling was awful. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, my spelling is awful, which is why I draw. Um, but she kind of taught me how to construct it. So when I did, Alice made this and thought I was going to even just do the cufflinks, I did put together a basic of like what I wanted to do in one year, what I wanted to do in three years, blah, blah, blah. Um, and what the challenges versus all the, the risks and the SWAT stuff was and all that kind of thing. I didn't, like P&Ls, I didn't even know how to use Excel when I started. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but quite quickly I learned and um, the reality of running the business is you just have to get stuff done. Yeah. So you do just get stuff done. I think uh, my biggest learning of until Ed came on was that it got to the stage where I was spending 80% of my time running the business side and 20% on the creative stuff because the creative stuff was easy so I could get it done more quickly. And the business side for me at the time was much harder. So it took me a lot longer. Right. Um, yeah. 
So it was a challenge, um, but I, yeah, I learned on the job, basically. It was good fun. My, my, a good funny thing with Mr. Porter is I turned up to my meeting on day two, and they were like, so how much are these? I didn't know what a wholesale price was. I mean, I was that amateur. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, I knew that you kind of had to have some kind of markup, but the furniture markups are quite slightly different. Um, so they gave me, on my buying meeting with them, they gave me a lesson in pricing and told me to come back to them a week later with oh, my pricing structure. Bless them. I know. Brilliant guys. I know, exactly. Um, uh, f- fabulous. But of course, you did... Actually, my, quickly before I move on, the, f- the first months, years... Was it enjoyable or was it just hellish getting a business moving? How it was, was really it? enjoyable because things kind of propelled quite quickly, but it was, it got hellish. Right. So um, uh, launched it, was still at Conran, had my son, um, moved house when he was three weeks old, um, which is this house, and the house was a bit of a dive. And because I was, you know, on maternity leave and I was with a design company and got statutory maternity and all that jazz, I didn't have any cash to kind of pay a painter to paint the house so (laughs) I was kind of doing DIY and trying to sort some stuff out um with the brand and mother a child all at once um and I yeah I would get up at five like ridiculous stuff to to get it all in anyway it got to the stage where Ed learned quite quickly how to pack a cufflink box and all that kind of stuff how to pack packing labels and we would polish cufflinks at night time for hours on end <laughs> that would be it in front of the telly yeah exactly <laughs> yeah, yeah. exactly fumigate our child with brasso and all that kind of mm. stuff at the time um and then it kind of organically grew i got a call up from the british fashion council and at the time men's fashion week um had had one season in london and so it had had quite a lot of bfc uh, british fashion council backing um, as an entity and I was very fortunate to be timed well with that so they offered us a place there and we did a second collection and got a couple of Japanese buyers interested um, again I didn't know much at the time coming from design I knew so many design brands but Beams came onto our Beams International came onto our stand and I was like who are they? Love so it I was like oh my god they're amazing <laughs> <laughs> um, very cool Where, roughly when was that? I'm just trying that was to 2013 2013 yeah. so that and that really that I was... stood next to Becky on her Marwood sand, that's how we met. Ah, Becky French. Yeah, Becky of, French. Uh, Turnbull exactly. Wonderful. Series series one listeners, um, if you haven't listened to it already, another great episode, can recommend. And actually um, that, she was, it was so nice to have another person in the menswear industry that you could just kind of go for a beer with and chat challenges and excitement and what, what, information. What, it, what has it been like being a, a woman in the menswear industry over the past few years? Oh God, it's amazing. The menswear industry is so lovely. I mean, I can't compare it to women's wear because I kind of came into women's accessories. I'm, and also I'm accessories, so it's kind of like slightly bolted on the yeah, side in the nicest possible way. Um, it's very collaborative rather than competitive, which I was really pleasantly surprised by. So everyone is open to chatting um, and sharing information. Um, yeah, it's good. Really good. Uh, cool. Being a being a woman in it, I think, is... I don't know whether it's different to being a man. I've kind of grown up with two brothers and kind of <laughs> fairly comfortable in male environments, so it's much more suited to me than being in women's wear, women's fashion. Jolly good. Yeah. Excellent. Um, n- another question then that sort of r- relates to uh, 
relates to that. When when you sort of set Alice Made off, obviously today the brand is for both men and women, and you do obviously you have cufflinks where it all began, but you have wonderful jewelry pieces and bracelets yeah. and things like that. Um, when you hit upon the brand was there a challenge involved in branding a jewelry brand for men or did it just not really yeah so we were very conscious of that at the time and I think that's something that's massively developed so since we launched absolutely in that we adam were adamant we weren't going to be a jewelry brand we were men's accessories if we termed it jewelry it was just all wrong a because it was from a really industrial kind of technical place um and b because um, men just weren't comfortable with jewellery at the time. Now, I I kind of feel weird not calling it jewellery because it is it is that category. And I also think men are much more comfortable with the idea of a watch being jewellery as much as uh, um, a bracelet or a cufflink or a ring being jewellery. Cool. It's fu- funny, isn't it, how, how, how narrow-minded Attitudes us blokes change. can be? <laughs> well, I think it's just... I think also men are much more um, comfortable shopping for themselves. So oh, yeah. making their own decisions than they were six or seven years ago. Uh, it's, it's funny you say that, actually, because I, again, um, that we, we've definitely made progress as, uh, in terms of looking after ourselves and our appearances in one half, one half of the species. But I, it's funny that I do find there are some men who are much more confident and there are other uh, men that I come across at, I don't know, whether it's some sort of event or... I don't know, a panel evening or, again, actually, if someone just messages me on Instagram for some advice, um, my heart does still go out to so many guys that aren't confident in styling themselves or experimenting with something new or Yeah, well, I think it's... And and I I, I kind of feel awful stereotyping because it's not kind of one for all. But I do think there is a genetic thing about not wanting to ask someone for advice unless they are someone who kind of... Um, openly knows their stuff like asking you for comments or stuff it's like asking for directions they'd much rather look it up themselves so I think that <laughs> but an online platform does offer that yes, massively it democratises it yeah. doesn't it so whether it's a blog that you've written or whether it's a um, googling you know different types of cufflinks or to have information laid out in front of you that you don't have to ask anyone for definitely opens a massive door for men I think mm. Talk to me a little bit then, and I guess we've touched on it, but I'd like to know more about some of the successes and failures that you, you've had along the way. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, lots. Ah, I wouldn't know where to start. Um, I try to think I'm really comfortable failing in the nicest possible way. Um, and I try to think of them as experiments rather than failures. Love it. <laughs> Great idea. Because I kind of think that in order to get to certain areas, you have to experiment along the way and things like uh when we were a cufflink brand took it's taken us a good kind of four or five years and even lots of people know us as a cufflink brand still to kind of shift from being cufflinks into accessories and jewelry um but when we were solely cufflinks it was trying to work out what categories we wanted to go into next right and we could go deep into men's so um kind of hardware and software in terms of accessories or we could go into women's as well and so that was a lot of experimentation around what kind of typologies were right or not right and which had traction but had we not done it then we wouldn't have known what the successes were um other successes and failures i probably should have got ed involved a bit sooner (laughs) that's interesting okay um i'm a bit of a control freak (laughs) um (laughs) That's not a bad thing. I know, but it's 
sometimes can be painful when you're trying to build a business. Um, and so I didn't realise how much I was having to work before I called upon some kind of business partner, which ended up being Ed. And when, talk to me about that moment in the company's development then. When did Ed... In 2014. Okay. Um, and we'd got to the stage where I was freelancing to pay mortgage and childcare and then doing Alice Made This any time that I wasn't freelancing. And I was probably doing about three days freelancing and four days Alice Made This and kind of weekends and evenings were non-existent. And I would just be in the studio and Ed would be saying to me, what are you doing? It's like 2am, Mike, just come in. And I was like, I can't, you don't understand, yeah, I yeah. can't. <laughs> yeah. I can't stop. Yeah, <laughs> there I've, is got, a deadline. I've got so much to do. Yeah. Um, and when he then joined, um, he was like, I get what you mean now. But it was, it was then that I started kind of fishing around for an appropriate business partner. And I had a kind of old colleague that was from a business background and had worked with kind of VC companies and stuff. And so knew how to structure a company for growth. Not that we were working with VC companies, but we, um, he just had that kind of relevant base to make us understand about what kind of systems we needed to put in place and what recruitment we needed to think about. And it became very obvious very quickly that a business partner to do the stuff that I was not so good at or that I didn't enjoy doing would be very relevant. And so I started looking and um, had a couple of interviews with different people and there was just no one quite right that had the separate skill set, uh, had the interest and the passion in the same way, had was up for the kind of loyalty to the long game. And then I went for coffee with an old design buddy of mine who was just like, oh my God, Ed would be perfect for this. So <laughs> I went home and said, so Richie said that you'd be good. <laughs> and they're just like, yeah, totally, let's do it. And Wicked. I was like, what? So you weren't expecting him to... Yeah. Um, well, because it's all your eggs in one basket. And we mm. were like, well, we will have to provide ourselves with a salary because we have a mortgage to pay. We've got a child that can't sit with us while we try and build a business because we won't get anything done. So mm. childcare needs to be paid for. So there was a... We went into a business needing payment out of it immediately. Um, uh, yeah. So it was a big, a big, a big decision. But I think that kind of overrode the fact that we were like, well, what about working together? Um, and then we thought about that. And thankfully, we are very different. And we almost like parallel channel what we do in the company because we do the separate sides of the business. So we physically still have meetings together so that we, because we don't know what each other's up to, we just let each other get on with it. Cool. But that, I would say that took about a year of, of me handing over slowly but surely. And that I had our daughter in that year which was a blessing in disguise it was nightmare because it was carnage but it was blessing because it I had to hand stuff over yeah yeah um, and I had to just trust him to get on with it which for his sake was much better than having me over his shoulder uh, nagging <laughs> I think a, a lot of a lot of business owners particularly as sort of small independent brands um really struggle to let let go um so, so it's interesting to hear that you, yeah. you say that quite quickly though you realize that people can do it better than you can especially the stuff you're not very good at <laughs> fair dues like yeah. a, a fair enough like the creative and design and stuff I'm probably fairly control freaky with still but all of the logistics and the um kind of the digital kind of marketing PPC all that kind of stuff you need to get your teeth into it and I just don't have time to no do that. and someone is far more educated in that area that can do it much better and you have time now just to do the design and the creativity and enjoy that or still um I have to I have to separate myself to get that time but I'm I'm quite strict now where 
when I know that we've got new collections or new experiments or exploration to do that I will let myself do it, which maybe three years ago I probably would put it at the bottom of the to-do list. Fine. And it's, it has... it seems like a luxury, but actually it is what the brand's about. So It has got to happen. Yeah. yeah. Now, um, as we sort of start, start to, to wind up a little bit, my next question, which again you've already touched on a little bit, was when Ed joined the business, all of a sudden you have this moment, as you've already said, of all your eggs in one basket. How... Did, how did you kind of deal with that? I mean, obviously, it's we, we can sit here now three or four years later and know that it was the right thing to do, which is wonderful. But at the time, yeah, terrifying. <laughs> um, I would say to anyone, just do it because um, it's sink or swim. And most people won't sink. Um, but it was quite full on. Yeah. I do look back now and think, wow, I'm glad. I'm glad I had kids and didn't know any different because... I have colleagues, uh, contemporaries now who want to start a family and they just don't know when to do it. I'm like, no time's a good time. You just got to kind of suck it up and get through it. Um, And I do think a lot of things happened because it was that moment in my life. I'm very thankful that I had the 12 years experience prior to it. Um, I'm very, very thankful that I was running my own business when I was starting a family because I could do it my way I mean week two of Rocky being born I took him to a rope factory in um, (laughs) Kent and like left him in the buggy just outside I was really close but left him in the buggy snoozing while I went off and did kind of hang out with the um, factory owners and the the first factory that we work with that we still work with today have seen me through my entire family they're like my part of like my brotherhood type thing so there is you know that people are very forgiving of how you do stuff um but it was on my terms. I'm sure if I was working for a big corporation, if I told them I was going to take a, a baby along with me to all my meetings, they'd have words with me. Yeah. Brilliant, though. Yeah. And, and so wonderful that you've kind of been able to uh, to just to sort of absolutely fly. I mean, Yeah. I mean, there have been... I've, I do have moments of, like, breastfeeding in broom cupboards at trade shows and <laughs> um, sitting in car parts at 10pm at night with a Japanese client in a restaurant because the baby wouldn't go to sleep and like having to get them to sleep and then push back in and um which I think of other funny stories where um yeah I mean I mean that's where the beauty of working with your husband um, yeah I mean I found out a lot of amazing things like trade shows have complimentary nurseries that you can put your children into who knew that either does, it does pretty yeah who I mean knew? that has been my godsend and they're all like beautiful 23 year old Italian ladies who look after your children for the week I do I know um wonderful well thank you uh alice i've really enjoyed this I, there are a couple of more just a couple more questions that i think i'd like to round off with and the first because it has run all the way through this conversation is um clearly you are very very good at giving advice about running nice. a, a, your own your own business and building an independent brand um in, in addition to all the lovely sort of uh, nuggets of wisdom we've we've just listened to, do you have any advice for someone who's sort of, you know, that look you ten years ago? You know what? what? Yeah, I would say do it your way. I'd say do it first of all because you can. The worst thing that can happen is that it doesn't work or you don't enjoy it, and you can go back to what you were doing before. And then I'd say um, do it your way. And we've had a lot of advice of a lot of amazing people, which I'm so thankful for. Um, but they've all got the advice based on their experience. So it's kind of taking that advice, advice and translating it into kind of your way. And so taking what you want from it and leaving what you want from it. That's a skill in itself, isn't it? 
I, yeah, and some uh, of them might not be right. You no. might make, you will make mistakes, of course. I did that, now that I really respect. Again, I'm sort of I'm sat here quietly um, trying to uh, make sure that this is this is interesting to our lovely listeners. But I'm really identifying with a lot of your yeah, saying. Yeah, yeah being three months into being self-employed. Yeah. And there will be moments that someone sent me when we were kind of like two years in and freaking out quite a lot. Um, someone sent me this amazing graph, which I've still got on my desktop. I'll send it to you. Cool. Still got on my desktop now, which is like um, a kind of loop, um, probably a standard hockey stick curve or whatever they use in NBA chat. Um, but... Um, it's all about the emotional journey of someone starting their own business where you'll be in the depths of sorrow and then you'll think, woohoo, we're just starting to gain traction and then there'll be like another painful moment. And I do, every time I have a little wobble, I look at that and be like, it's okay, it's okay, other people are going through this too. Yeah, it's, it's, cic- <laughs> it's cyclical. Yeah, exactly. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, I, I think your, your advice to not be afraid to kind of synthesise other people's advice is brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I've, I, the amount of, of really wonderful advice I've had just about managing workflow or workload or getting into different parts of the industry in the last three months has been brilliant. But you do, there are moments where you, you, you hear three different opinions and go, okay, well, which one's right? now I just yeah. have to trust my guts at yeah, this totally, point. Yeah, totally, totally. Really interesting. Um, and my last question then is, um, are there other brands in our space that you have been looking at recently that you're into or that you've always idolised and respected? What else could our listeners go away and take a bit of a look at? Oh, goodness. Um I'm trying to say not anything too predictable. That's all right. Um, I do have an affinity with Private White cool. in that I like the fact they're made in Britain. I like the cleanness of their products. I like the kind of hint to the workwear vibe and the kind of hard-wearing fabrics, and I like the hardware. Um, uh, who else am I intrigued by? Um, I really enjoyed listening to your Connolly um, oh really podcast actually good I would be fascinated to meet Is- Isabel Isabel is wonderful yeah yeah um, yeah probably those two I mean I, I tend to find inspiration and excitement from a lot of products and kind of furniture and process stories rather than necessarily kind of tailoring and um, yeah, clothing course. which sounds a bit crazy but no, um, no, no. Yeah, I get so it. That's that's super cool. People like that. People like Beth and Gray. I find fascinating. Who uses? Who does all kinds of collaborations with different materials? Or um, Todd Bracher, who's an American designer, who's quite intriguing. Things like that. Brilliant. Some some good names. Some names yeah. to go away and explore. Well, Alice, thank you so so much. I really enjoyed that. I got a huge amount out of that, and I'm sure our our listeners will have too. I'm going to go away and synthesise all your advice. Oh God. I didn't mean it to be so. I didn't mean it to be an advice pack. No, it was, but it's it's wonderful. It was so interesting to get your to hear your story properly for the first time and to kind of get your take. Um, so thanks so much indeed for taking some time out. You're very welcome. It's lovely to see you. You too. I don't know about you, but I could have chatted with Alice all day. Now. Unfortunately, there's no quickfire questions to end this week because we came up with the idea after we'd recorded this episode. Sorry, folks. Instead, all that remains is for me to say that's all from Handcut Radio this week. Usual drill, we'll be back next Wednesday. 
Between now and then, follow us on Instagram at Handcut Radio. And if you like this episode, please rate and review us. It helps other people to discover the pod. The podcast is produced in collaboration with Birch, a London and New York-based creative agency. Please do check out their superb work at thinkbirch.com. Our theme music is by the marvellous Joe Boyd. Hear more from him by following at This Is Joe Boyd. Finally, thank you very much indeed for listening, and we look forward to seeing you next week. Mm-hmm.